0: Welcome to IntelliCast. By the way, Brian, I'm still mad. I don't get to hear the song. We had feedback about the song on on LinkedIn. Mike Carroll, shout out to Mike Carroll, putting his best of podcasts up. (laughs) And he mentioned our song, (laughs) um, which has been a coup for a couple of years. By the way, this is IntelliCast, brought to you by EMI Research Solutions. This is episode 29, season five. Season five, wow. Um, Joining me today, as always, Brian Peterson. Hello, Brian. Hello. And also, special guest today is our Chief Operating Officer, Beth Tehan.
1: Hey, guys. Thanks Hello. for
0: inviting me. Same room. This is a rare moment. It is a rare occurrence. Today, I think today is a special episode. Um, do you all agree?
1: I think so, yeah.
0: Okay. I would say it's a different episode than our normal episodes. So, Brooke Reeve, um, who's a doctor, a professor at Dominican University in Chicago, she's our guest today. and. She is really an expert on a topic that I think the industry has been somewhat, I don't know if about ignoring, but um, I was unaware of the depth of the challenges that we might face as an industry because of certain things all happening at once. And so she's gonna talk about how DIY tools, privacy legislation, HIPAA, and maybe a little bit of distrust in marketing research are all colliding, which will have a kind of a serious impact she says it's not if, it's when. Mm-hmm. Um, I tend to agree with her. I would encourage you to listen to the entire interview. It's a little long, it's about 40 minutes. Um, she's going to take you through a little bit of the history of marketing research as kind of a discipline, um, which is kind of unique. I hadn't heard of her that kind of perspective before. And then we'll have a discussion about how this impacts marketing research. And then after the interview, you'll hear Brian and Beth and I talk a little bit more. Um, how it might affect EMI and sampling more specifically. So um, anything I'm missing? I don't think so. All right. So um hope you enjoyed the interview. We'd love your feedback. Um, reach out to us at intellicast.emi-rs.com. At Follow us on Twitter, EMI underscore research, or Intellicast 1. We'd love a voicemail or text message, 513-401-5463, or make a comment on LinkedIn or reach out to us because this is a big topic and we'd love to get other people's input. Yeah. With no further ado, here is Dr. Brooke Reevy. Joining us now, I am super excited to have Professor Brooke Reedy, Dr. Brooke Reevy at Dominican University. I call her Brooke. Brooke, how are you? Thanks for joining.
2: Hi, I'm great. Thanks so much for having me.
0: Yeah, I'm so excited about this topic. It, um, it came out of left field for me personally. It should not have come out of left field. Um, I love your forward thinking. And so, It's been nice getting to know you, and Brooke also serves on our um, Professional Development Education Committee for the Insights Association. She's having a lot of value there, Uh, but maybe let's kind of start off with just kind of a little bit of your background. Is that okay?
2: Sure, yeah, happy to. Um, So I um, was in the market research industry before I went back to my PhD. Um, I started off as an intern working at was what was Commerce Bank and is now TD Bank. Um, So internships, you know, that's one of the reasons why I'm on the committee. Internships are super important. Um, I was able to get my feet wet and I realized how much I love the industry. Um, So I started off as a market research analyst there and then, um, you know, worked my way up. Uh, I, while I was there, I was getting my master's in market research at Temple. And then that master's provided me the opportunity to get into TNS, which is now Kantar, so many mergers and acquisitions over the years. Um, And I started off as a project director and um, worked my way up there. Um, Then I left and went to Hart Hanks for a little while. Um, I served served as a market research manager. And it was interesting doing um, all of the direct mail types of analysis and getting a better understanding of how to record and look at see what promotions are working. but ultimately, uh, the you know the crazy side of me took over, and I quit my job and traveled around the world for a year. And while I did that, I was um, applying for a PhD programs. So I took my GMATs while I was in Thailand. I applied for the different schools in Vietnam. Um, I had my actual interviews while I was in, in India. Um, And then I ultimately accepted where I was going to go to, which was Drexel for my PhD and when I was in Ethiopia. Um, And then from there, I came right back and went in for my PhD and started studying. The thing about PhD school and, you know, in marketing is that it's essentially market research, but like on super steroids. It's just that no one, there's just no real coordination between the market research industry and academia anymore. It's just, we've kind of grown apart. And so um, we learn all the techniques um, that I had learned when I was in working and when I was getting my master's. Um, we just have to learn how to write them up in a little bit differently um, in a different scientific manner.
0: Interesting. Um, that's that's such an incredible background. Um, and it's hard to segue to your topic that you spoke about, the Insights Association, because it's, <laughs> you have such a global perspective on everything and an academic perspective and um when I saw your topic, I was excited because it's relevant to a lot of what we do and a lot of what we talk about. Um it looks like its title was DIY Trends, How to Plan for Many Roads Ahead. Mm-hmm. And so that I could go in any kind of direction. Um I was not expecting the direction that you went, took it in. Um <laughs> we, I don't know how to start this. Maybe we start off with um I loved how you went through kind of the background of marketing research mm-hmm. and how you'll tell it better than me, but how it we don't have accreditation and how that happened, maybe. We can talk about that really quick.
2: Sure. Yeah. So, um, so one of the things we kind of have to think about is like from the, you know, where did we start from? And the reason why I always like to look back before we look forward is to get a better understanding. I, I am, I hated history in high school and I didn't realize that how important it was. It was one of those things that as I got older and I started to appreciate, we need to like, you know, there's no point in reinventing the wheel, and part of what I really liked when I was getting my PhD was that I had to go through the history of marketing. Um, and so I, I learned from a very, you know, um, early time of, of what, what, what happened, where did marketing come from? Because it's something that I think in our modern era, we just kind of take for granted. Um, yeah. So thinking back, like, you know, going back to where we began, economics is our cousin. Um, and so economics dates back 4,000 BC. And so people were talking about supply and demand back then. Um, and marketing only really emerged um, in about a hundred years ago, um, a little bit over hundred years ago, we broke off. And one of the reasons why we're called marketing is because we were, um, there were economists that were behavioralists and they were saying that it's more than just that we can't just set price on supply and demand because at that point there was industrialization. We started looking at the fact that, um, you know, the locomotive was really influencing how we could move around uh, supply. Um, you know, it really, it was just something that was just a, a kind of a, um, a very busy time um, for a theorist to start fighting about stuff. And so there were a group of economists that kept saying, no, it's the market. The market demands the price. The market is the one that sets the price. It's not supply and demand, it's the market because we had um, all of a sudden we, didn't, we weren't just stuck in our little, little villages of where we could get our flour. We could all of a sudden we could get flour from wherever and we could decide maybe I'd like the packaging that is set up in a, um, or the, the type of milling that was going on with my flour from a different uh, producer. And so that was what, what economists started to see. And so from there, um, economics and marketing broke off and marketing became its own discipline. Um, and so we started going through, um, you know, these big changes in history from that. So the first uh, part, part of time was, um, was thinking back in, from 1920 to 1940, basically, we had, um, it was like our questionnaire era, and we were going through, uh, th- going through a consensus. And so, um, you know, uh, we have to kind of um, think back to, like, what that actually means and why we cared about that. Um, well, one of the things is that, you know, trying to actually, actually asking people what they wanted to do and what they are, what they want was huge. That was like something innovative for them because we were still kind of caught in our production area era of marketing as I make this product and you buy it or you don't. And then we started realizing like, oh, uh, consumers actually do have a choice. They do have a, um, a preference. Let's start asking questions. Um, and so you know, for 20 something years, we were just kind of just asking questions and looking at it from a more consensus perspective. Um, From 1941 to 1960, we started looking at more motivation. So we realized that there's actually, uh, consumers are oftentimes buying um, for for multiple reasons. Could be that there's, um, you know, there's just some sort of, um, you know, they want to be more affluent, um they're being, you know, they're they're being um influenced by their um neighbors, they're being influenced by their family. There's more motivations that are actually influencing people to buy. And so that was still something that was not really understood. And that's where we started going into more of a qualitative research is we started realizing that asking people and not on surveys, but just to actually sit down and talk to them through focus groups and whatnot was easier for us to get a better understanding of you know what exactly they want. Um, and then from there, uh, marketing had a crisis. <laughs>
3: it
2: was the crisis time. Um, so from 1961 to 1980, um, it was. Uh, this is where we started going and uh, debating whether marketing is an uh, is an art or a science. And so the reason why that matters is that that was dis- that was the determining factor of whether we were considered um, a discipline in. Um, in a, you know, in a university academic setting. So discipline is um, anything you would major in, basically. Um, so like, it would be more of like, are you part of the business administration? Are you part of arts and sciences, all that? Or is it a profession? So marketing as a profession would be more along the lines of like an accounting degree. So, because and you'd have to get certified afterwards to make sure that you have, uh, that you have all of the knowledge of what you should. Um, So the reason why that happened is the Ford Foundation came through and they started evaluating all the different types of business schools out there. And they said, you know, um, like I don't know what's going on with marketing. Marketing doesn't seem to have any kind of a like there's no real set curriculum going across the board. Marketing is more um, like, you know, marketing is more of a uh, is more of a profession. And so it needs to be taught more like a profession. And all of the academics were pushing back and saying, no, 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 it's a discipline. We have theories. We have theories that we, that we use. They're mostly from psychology, but there are theories. And so, um, that pushback and that going back and forth for, uh, you know, created this big trend starting from about like 1980s until about 2000, where marketing went onto, into hyperdrive going into, um. Going, uh, you know, trying to figure out like that they're market oriented, and that we actually we can't necessarily um, use the exact same prescriptive techniques for every single account or for every single type of marketing out there because there's so many other variables that are at play. So ultimately, what happened was that we decided that the you know the the powers to be of the Ford Foundation and all of the academics decided that we were disciplined and we're not a profession, and so that that is key because if we were considered a profession there would be a certificate so that would be the uh, CPAs out there the CFAs out there the actuaries that have to get certificates um, all of the different types of insurance folks that are out there those are all professional degrees it's just that in the you know in the ivory tower being part of a professional degree is not doesn't have as much of a an elite status but um, you know going looking forward we're I think we're at the point now And because our discipline is so young in comparison to other areas within business that I think we are on the the path going towards being a professional degree as opposed to being, um, you know, being a a discipline.
0: Right there real quick. Yeah. And and I want to bring Brian and Beth in um, because this is where it gets fun, I think, is this next part. (laughs) And we're kind of grounded on, the, thank you for the history there. And that's, mm-hmm. it's fascinating to me. I never knew a lot of that since I don't have, I didn't go get my PhD and understand the history of marketing. I'm not sure if Brian knew that history. And I did so, not. Um, and I think it's so relevant to our industry today and kind of um, what you said that we might be moving towards more of a profession rather than a discipline. Mm-hmm. So, so, how is that relevant to today? Maybe is the question.
2: Sure. Um, so, as we're, if we move towards a profession as opposed to being a discipline, um, we have to, for one thing, we kind of have to agree on what's going to be considered professional and what's going to be considered discipline. So, for the most part, any area of marketing analytics um, and digital marketing since we're getting into, those are very prescriptive. Like you do have very set rules as far as like what you're looking at. If you think of the, if you think of like what's going on with any kind of digital marketing and the analytics behind digital marketing, it's much more like an accounting class than it is, um, you know, going through your marketing communications and figuring out what email is best to write, like what types of words to use. So when we go from that direction, um, what would happen then with the profession is that there would need to be some sort of certificate, um, or certification, and there would have to be continuing education credits that would allow us to, um, you know, show that we know what we're doing and we've been keeping up with the industry. Um, and market research, you know, kind of got caught up in that it's, we've let kind of let that go. Um, market research has always been the area that has been much more, um, of the professional side as opposed to the discipline side. Um, market research always has always been about how do you gather the data, how do you analyze the data, how do you interpret the data, um, you know, uh, making sure that we're asking the right questions um, and applying the scientific method to that. But we've kind of let that go. Um, and we're starting to see that now with the democratization of, of data and the democratization of market research we're starting to see that people just can assume that they can, anybody can do it because they've got these platforms that are convincing them through some degree of hubris that it's um, that it's easy peasy.
0: Yeah, and this is where you know I think that a lot of people have been saying this for a while. We've been saying this for a while that um, with with the proliferation of DIY tools, um, which is where you were taking this discussion, mm-hmm. anyone, literally anybody, today. Mm You can design a survey, Mm -hmm. acquire a sample of that survey, Mm -hmm. write a report and put it on lots of different um, places Mm -hmm. and be a thought leader, right? You don't need any type of formal education. In some ways, that's an advantage for us that um, anybody can do any kind of role, but I have noticed for a long time that people didn't, don't have questionnaire training background and now all of a sudden right. they're putting in a DIY tool. They don't have a sample background. <laughs> they don't have a data processing background. And now they're doing all of these disciplines, mm-hmm. which different jobs is that 15 years ago, that was probably six or six to 10 different people would touch a job that one person is now doing that may or may not have any training. So that's always been kind of, I don't know, we've talked about it. Right
1: the quality of the report, that's the output from that type of uh, research
2: project. There's no quality standards around that.
0: And there's no, no. Uh, peer review. Right? No,
2: no, no. Mm-hmm. no. And that's, you know, and, and the thing is, I've been teaching market research now for about 12 years, and um, I can tell you the logical fallacies that my students go through when they're writing, when they're writing questionnaires for the first time. And mm-hmm. so that's I cool. I've started using DIY tools and I started realizing, like, oh, these stink. Like these surveys are like, they're just using, they're going straight to the, um, you know, to to stuff that's already been pre-populated. And like, they're not getting, they don't understand what the dependent variable is. They're writing surveys. They don't realize that they're not actually measuring the thing that they want to. They're reporting on all kinds of crazy things. And so, um, you know, I realized I kind of got to this moment. I was like, "Uh, I don't understand. How is this, how is this happening? Like this was about probably six or seven years ago. I realized- Like how is this? How is this okay? How is the entire industry okay with this going the way it is? Because people are are pulling data, and and um, you know, like we're there's an influx of surveys now because it's so inexpensive to uh, to send out, you know, to your email list that no one wants to fill out surveys. No one wants to sit down. They don't trust you that you're going to give them any kind of incentive, even if you do, because we have a lot of bad actors in there that are doing this stuff and it's there's no it's like the wild wild west no one's following anything and so looking at the logical fallacies of and working with my students going through their logical fallacies and realizing how much I have to spend on like weeks
3: weeks 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 weeks, weeks
2: lots of homework lots of um, you know lots of lots of drafts of surveys and showing them lots of examples I thought to myself, like, how are these folks just going out in the world doing these things? And so, um, you know, doing my own research and talking to people that do their own DIY, they were like, well, you know, it's just, it's the, when I need to get a decision made quickly and I don't have that big of a budget, it's just easier to use the survey. I know it's not great, but it's, it's good enough. And so, um, that's the type of like having a good enough type of a mentality is, um, you know, it makes my, makes my hair stand up on the back of my neck because um not just my training but also just because of how much um you know the market research industry has always been there to help make decisions and if we're and we've always stood by the garbage in garbage out you know uh, philosophy and so if we're sending in, putting in garbage and spitting out garbage then how are we making decisions anymore with just good enough types of um Surveys. I mean, it's just, it's wild. Who
1: address the data that comes out of these good enough surveys? If, if decisions are being made at company levels, mm-hmm. brands making decisions, and things are not going the way they expect, mm-hmm. you know, what happens to our reputation as a research industry? Right. Yeah, it's not good. <laughs> no, it's not. It's, it's very scary. We, we've already to...
0: seen our reputation hindered by mm-hmm. political polling alone. Right. which has about as strict rigor as possible in marketing research. And you can critique it because that's one of the few areas in research that we can um, look at data and then we can evaluate the success of the data, right? Mm -hmm. Um, But in most of marketing research, it really is the wild, wild west. And you mentioned, I think, MTurk, which is big with um, academic and academic world, which is really... Bad sample is what I would say. I'm oh, it's not
2: even, it's, I mean b- bad sample is like is being polite. It's okay. garbage. It's complete garbage. Why who who is gonna take my survey for 25 cents? Who? <laughs> I don't care about the incidence level. Who's gonna take who's gonna spend their time for 25 cents?
1: Right.
0: So so we have a lot of factors going into this. We have bad sample, we have uneducated users of DIY tools Mm. for the most part. I'm not saying everybody across the board, Mm. but we have very few people in our entire industry that are trained on all aspects of marketing research. Uh, Mm -hmm. I mean, very, very few, right? Right. Um, And so this is causing lots of problems just on the um, designing and helping businesses make business decisions. Mm
3: -hmm. Yep.
0: Then to making things more complex is what you talked about next, which then, I I think you got to a slide when you presented this in Chicago, and we never got off the slide. I think you had about 200 200 questions (laughs) when you talked about um, um, HIPAA violations and Mm -hmm. privacy. Mm -hmm. And so when you combine all these things, we're not accredited. We um, have the data democratization, as you said. Anybody can Mm -hmm. do things. And now all of a sudden we have privacy, very strict privacy laws, either in place now or coming Mm -hmm. soon, along with HIPAA, you pull that together, that's a recipe for disaster, right?
2: Absolutely, yeah. I mean, the fact that, yeah, I mean, there's nobody to report to. There's nobody to say, like, hey. So, I mean, I think think one of the things that's going on is that um, surveys are omnipresent. We have literally no idea. I'm hoping that we can do this, uh, track this research at one point, but to count how many surveys people come across in one week, I mean, it's just, it's gone up so much. It used to be a rare thing when somebody would be asked to to participate in a survey. But if I ask my students now, first of all, they don't even know, like, they don't even know what they would consider a survey. Because most of the time, what, you know, they, they get emails or they get text messages and they're like, oh, yeah, right. Or they get, you know, is it a thumbs up or a thumbs down? They don't know. There's just, it's just everywhere. It's so omnipresent that it's something that we just kind of ignore. But we have we don't have anybody overseeing us. There's no, we've always alo- been allowed, and, and for good reason, we've always been allowed to explore and go through and uh, ask people questions to be able to help our companies and help our brands to be able to go back to being market oriented. So like to make sure that we're making the products that um, meet the needs and wants of customers. But as we go forward, and as things are going, being more individualized, it gets harder and harder to, um, to be able to, to wrangle that. And so, um, yeah, it's, 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 to me, it's just, it's, uh, it's wild. And it's something that, you know, I, I, I don't want to sound like chicken little and saying that the, you know, that the sky is falling, but there is something beckoning on our, you know, coming around the corner, that's going to be not so good for the industry. Um, and we need to. Take, we need to take a big, long, hard stare at and, and stance about figuring out what exactly we want to do about this, um, because it's not it's not helpful to the brands who are conducting their own research. It's not helpful to the vendors who have been who live and die on their reputation and it's not helpful to the DIY vendors because their platforms can be changed overnight by, a, by any kind of legal regulation that's happening. So we shouldn't be blindsided by this. We should be thinking about this from a more proactive perspective. You know, This is not just like, oh, somebody might come in and steal my identity through, through email. This is not, we're, we're past that, that's spam. You know, We're thinking this is more of how, how is it possible that I can be going onto a survey, into a, a DIY survey platform and asking any question I want that, you know, like it, it's that, if I was at a university level, I have to go through something called the Institutional Review Board. It's IRB and uh, folks from other countries, universities, they have to go through something It's called the Ethics Board. It's the same thing, it's just different countries. And I have to have every single survey reviewed by them I have to put in an explanation of the sample that I'm using and I have to justify it. So at the university level, <laughs> I have been like years of training and making sure that I'm not going to be hurting or harming anybody by asking these questions. If I still have to go through these committees. And then when we've got our um, industry partners going through and, and making sure that they're actually being compliant, how is it possible that these um, that these DIY firms are out there just letting people write whatever they want and collect whatever the information they have. And we don't know what they're, you know, we, we would, we're we're operating under the assumption that they're just gathering data, but no one knows what kind of data is being, is being um, monitored. No one knows what kind of information they're asking people. And the one thing we do know is that if you pay people enough or you promise to pay them enough, they'll tell you whatever they want. It's a trade-off for them. If you say, I'm going to give you a $100, a $100 um, thank you gift, um, but you need to tell me some more information I mean that's thats it could be a very bad actor that's that's easily doing that and then never paying them
1: it hurts our industry too because there's so many places where we're fighting against legislation that groups us in with other types of industries
3: mm-hmm. and you have mm-hmm. a
1: few of the DIY platforms and people who are not educated about legislation go out and break all these rules it just it makes it so much harder for our industry to have reputation and stay out of uh, you know some of its other federal legislation that's out there I mean how fine are He's constantly working to try to keep us separated as an industry and keep our industry um, following the right rules and regulations so we don't get lumped in. And this is just, you know, it's really hard when bad actors, as you say, are uneducated about the rules and the legislation.
2: Well, sure. And th- th- the other thing, too, is that, you know, I would love to see how often people are writing surveys. Um, if I remember correctly, if, if there's, it's in my textbook or it's in one of the textbooks I teach. I think it's called slugging or sh- it's where you send out a survey, and then at the end, it turns into a sales pitch. Oh, um, yeah. <laughs> so how often is that happening? And how yeah. often is, that's going to hurt us? I mean, we have, it's already hard enough. I mean, think about, so if we want to look at everything out there of like all of the things that are going on. So if we look at all of our public policy polls, and all of our public policy um, surveys that are run, so like, our unemployment numbers are run through surveys. Mm -hmm. It's hard to get people to answer the phone. We don't necessarily trust that people are gonna answer that the right people are actually answering their um, email. So we've already been decreasing. It's harder harder and harder to get in touch with these folks. And then we're gonna have all these other uh, people that are um, not showing any kind of um, ethics. Um, and asking, because it's not, they're not actually helping anything. They're not, they're, you know, there's a lot of stuff of what we're doing where we're overwhelming consumers with how much opinions we want them to, to fill out. I mean, it's just, um, I don't know. I mean, I, I'm, I'm genuinely curious if we really need to know if we need to track somebody at every single transaction that they have with a firm. Do we need to know how it went? Um, and how is it being used? Is it being used for employee training? Or are you going to fire them? <laughs> So <laughs> how, what kind of insights are we getting from that,
1: Brooke? I'm wondering in this presentation, did you get to suggestions and recommendations? Because Brian came back, and I think he was probably in town for an hour, and he's texting me, "We got to talk. We got to talk. We got to talk." I just heard this presentation; it flips things upside down. We have to talk about this. Did you actually get to recommendations? Is something that Insights Association should own? Like, where do you see this going?
2: So I think that there's a few things that we need to do. The first is um, one of the areas that I was talking about is that the, the, one of the reasons why these DIY platforms have been able to do whatever they want is because of Section 230 and the Communications Decency Act. Section 230 was created in the 90s uh, when, the, um, when the internet was just kind of getting up and going. And the idea was that let the you can't sue a platform um, with somebody else's publications, you know, whatever that other, those other publications are, are going on, whatever that. So the communications decency act is being reviewed right now, because I think we can all agree that the internet has grown to the point where it doesn't need any more protections. And so, but that then that is like, yeah, that's freaking people out even more of like, what does that mean? Where can that go? Where, you know, what is, what is all, where is that going? So for one thing we need to think about, um, like, what do we want to do as an, as an industry if that, like, what would we want to see from an ethics perspective if all of a sudden we have some sort of regulation that's saying what we can do and what we can't do? Do we want to have an organization or a person be certified to answer these questions? Do we want to have these platforms have a bot that goes through and says, no, you can't download this information. You can't ask these questions. This is a HIPAA violation. Do we wanna make sure that they're trained to some degree that makes sure that their PII is not, um, and you know, that makes sure that the PII is, is encrypted um, and that is separate from their opinion uh, research? We have a lot of things of how we want to see how things will go and thinking really forwardly, like the next 50 years, um, like we really have to, we can't just think five years, we have to really think super long-term out, uh, out, out. And the other thing is, do we want to have, do we want to be pressing more of each organization should be getting ISO certified, or do we want to push more of the insights association certification level? Because if we're going to get to the point where we have folks that are being certified, it's, there's reasons why we would want to the first thing is is that if you know and it would and it's going to have to come from somewhere it's going to have to either come from the insights association saying like enough is enough we can't do this anymore we saw this recently from another discipline within the registered dietitians registered dietitians said we can't just have people just going getting in their bachelors and getting and getting certified this is not okay so they required people to get their masters to then get certified and you can't be a registered dietitian and work anywhere without a certification So do we want to build that up from internal and say you can't work in a market research firm without some degree of certification or a master's? But the master's is even we can't we we can't. um, uh, Without a certification, we can't make sure that the curriculum is the same everywhere. Um, Hmm. And so we would need to make sure, like, what do we want as a consensus and like who are the major thought leaders about where we want to go? So there's, so there's a couple things or, you know, and we have to think about what we want to do. I personally think that we need to, for the future, because marketing analytics is, you know, we're, we're kind of going through this, it, it, You know, sorry, it's a, it's hard to, it, it's hard to articulate, but um, because marketing is such a newer discipline in comparison to all the other disciplines within the, within business administration, we're, we're kind of like we're like going past the teenage years into our adult years. You know, if we consider ourselves that economics has been around since 4000 BC and we've only been around for 100 years, like maybe we've been like toddlers for the past little while of trying to figure out what the heck we are. Marketing analytics is its own discipline at this point. We it is our one of the one of the main theories that marketing owns. And so um, that I that area I think needs to get certified. I think that we cannot have people that are going out and saying like, yeah, I took a marketing analytics course and I just use this platform and it tells me what to do. I think we need to have folks along the lines, same lines as the actuaries being certified. And I think that marketing analytics and market research need to um, you know, join, join hands um, and agree the fact that even though market research is more about gathering data and doing uh, more opinion and, and um, attitude-based research, And marketing analytics tends to be more behavioral research, that the two areas need to link hands about how are we appropriately um, gathering data, storing data, um, and making sure that we're compliant from a data privacy perspective. Because we have companies, I mean, I'm sure you guys have come across this before where you're working with a brand and legal just gets in the way and it's like, nope, sorry, PII is there, can't get the data. Well, we've stripped it and we're going to, you know, we've anonymized it. Can I, can I give them the data? Nope. Sorry. Can't do that. And so instead of these like hurdles with legal, if we have somebody who's certified and we know that they know how to separate the data, that is a risk mitigation for the uh, firm at many levels. Um, so there's, there's, there's that. And then we also have to think about, um, you know, now that we're coming across this, I don't, I can't remember what it's called. It's not, it's like the new safe Harbor, the agreement between Europe and, um, and, uh, the U S and the, our data, data transactions. We have to start thinking about how, what does that look like? Because GDPR is much more strict for, uh, for privacy and how we're allowed to use PII than in the U S. So I mean I, I don't know I mean I I like I don't I never want to sound like a like Chicken Little but I I see big problems ahead if we don't come to consensus
0: about what we want to do. Um, I completely agree, and I want to back up just a, real quick. I would encourage everyone to Google Section two hundred and thirty of the Communications Decency Act. I did, and um, I think how it's relevant for most of us for researchers are that typically a company like Qualtrics or Focus Vision would be immune from legislation if like a HIPAA violation occurred, right? Mm-hmm. In almost all cases. And it wasn't designed for Qualtrics, it was designed for lots of things on the internet, all, lots of different platforms. Right. But I just, on my research, I'm sure you're, you've done more than me, Congress is considering 14 bills that could amend section 230, mm-hmm. which could repeal it or limit the scope. And yeah. that, if that happens, then we're going to be forced yeah, to somehow figure this out, and I don't know if we want someone that Qualtrics determining this right. oversight, right? right. I yeah, I, I mean, so sure.
2: right, Qualtrics. Qualtrics is in it for themselves. Like, I mean, I, like they're a great platform. I use them. I have, I teach my students how to do it, how to use them. AYTM is great too. You know, they have beautiful graphics. There's a lot of really good things out there. I haven't used SurveyMonkeys in a long time. But there's, you know, and and the thing is, uh, you know, every big research vendor is always like, well, you know, we have our own DIY tool too. Well, there yeah. we're all every single DIY tool out there, and 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 I do dif- disagree. I know that the Insights Association just came out with um, another uh, report saying that there it's still two, uh, the DIY um, market is still two percent. I disagree with that. I think it's closer to they because they consider. HubSpot and all the digital uh, analytics uh, uh, areas separate. And that's 17%. I think that we're actually talking about 20% of the market. And when we're talking about 20% of a $960 billion market, I mean, that's pretty big. Um, and that's only what we know about, you know, there's still, there's still figure we have to figure out how we're actually going to like calculate this and what, what's considered self-service. and. You know, yeah. just if I create a dashboard, is that considered self-service? Like, what what are all of these things? And we, it really mm-hmm. comes down to, um, you know, following along and looking at where data is and where data is going and how data is being used, um, and particularly within the marketing um, organization and the marketing department. And one of the things that I also talked about in my um, talk was about data democratization. So we've got this big push on everybody wanting to be able to get access to all the data at any given moment. And so there are these insights engines that are being uh, built that cost millions of dollars at big, huge firms. So like your Unilevers and your Walmarts. My husband, he's a consultant who works with Mayo Clinic. Um, they are doing um, something with, uh, with, with data democratization. Um, we, I just talked to some, my, one of my friends who's, um, doing something with the data democratization for all of her vendors. She does, she deals with, um, she's a retailer. And so we don't want to, we want to be in a position where we don't have somebody who's a paper pusher, which I totally get. But at the same time, we're just running with all this data and your data is just going left and right, all the, all these different places. And it's very personal information that we provide. and. There, there's just there's a lot of um, information that, that's out and being gathered about us, and being sold and brokered, and you know, 50 times over a day, um, that we have we can't keep a, a, a good we don't have a good handle on. That's one of the reasons why GDPR was created. Um, I happened to be living in Romania for a year when GDPR was first initially launched. My husband created the Center of Excellence for PwC uh, Europe. While he was out there. So I that was a big dinner conversation, is all the different areas about GDPR. Um <laughs> and so I know we're a bunch of boring people over at my house. Um, but we, you know, thinking about all of the ways that we can um that uh, that where there, you know, once once GDPR came out and there was all these reports about things that happened. So, like for example, um GDPR was is was used for um a lot of governments that were uh, less than ethical to um, to be able to just go ahead and, and create fines for people. If, uh, you know they asked Uber, um, they find when I was when I was living there, in Romania I'd find Uber because Uber was a, um, asking people for their location and they were gathering their location for where they needed to get picked up, and that violated GDPR. And so they find them many, millions of euros. Um, which obviously, there's no way that Uber could operate without asking for somebody's location um but well but the other thing too is that trying to understand how like how what kinds of data is out there and what's being misused so there was um, a report of a of a german um who asked amazon to send all of his alexa recordings because we know that alexa is just constantly recording us um and he was given uh like 72 hours of tape um, for somebody else's conversation, somebody else that it wasn't him, it wasn't his house, it was somebody else's house. And so we've got a lot of things that we like, you know, that's, that's a big problem from a consumer privacy perspective and also from a company perspective, from a reputation perspective. It's hard mm-hmm. to keep track of data. I mean, anybody who's had to deal with databases, that was one of the key things that I learned being, a, you know, um, an intern and doing market research, being an our market research analyst at a bank. Was that trying to keep track of all the different data that's going across all the different databases, and uh, you know all the different types of errors that come up when you're trying to merge that, and then where do you save the data? How do you use the data? Um, I mean, these are some of the key questions that I think, as a as a marketing analyst, you have to you know, you really have to spend a lot of time thinking about the ethics of it. Um, okay. Anyway, sorry, I've been yeah.
0: Now, I could
2: talk
0: trying, about this all day long. I don't want to <laughs> um, so I'm not sure if I, originally I thought this would the solution would be forced out of Europe because they seem to be ahead of the u s in terms of like privacy and regulation mm-hmm. and data. And there's probably more distrust of marketing and marketing research in Europe than there is in the u s but I think if section 230 changes, that's going to force them the u s so to I me. Agree. I don't know what your goal is, but by this talk, my guess is to raise awareness. I think we should be talking to people at SMR about this. We should be talking Mm -hmm. to Insights Association, Melanie Howard, Kristen, and Lisa Wadden-Brown at SMR, and starting to build awareness to this and um, maybe a committee forums of some sort that offer suggestions for the industry. Yeah,
2: I I agree. I mean, I I don't want to be – so the thing is, is we don't – we can see what happens when uh, lawmakers make decisions for us, and then we get caught. In the, we get caught in the crossfire. Um, you know, nobody saw what was going to, nobody realized what was going to happen in California when they changed their uh, incentive or whatever. I can't remember how the law was written, but it wound up being that incentives were going to have to be at the hourly wage, and you're going to have to report it, and blah blah blah. So all of that stuff, like we were caught in the crossfire with it because we didn't see it coming. And so I think there needs to be a forward-looking committee that is saying, okay, so what would this look like now? Because now there is just, it's so easy to collect data. That it's, you know, you can have the servers that are buried under the ocean that are collecting all this data and storing it into these big data lakes. What do we see our industry doing? And how, you know, and from an academic perspective, how can the academics help too? Because you have a lot of folks that while not doing this stuff day to day, we've been trained uh, for years. I mean, going through a PhD is five years. Um, you know, it, we have to go through all those super advanced analytics, have to go through all the ethics training, we have to go through all everything for that, but what, how can the two areas merge together because it's not just what's happening within the industry it's what's being it's what's being trained at the university and the master's level um, to be able to get folks to be more aware of this and my, I can train my students, but that's only you know 100 students a year. Um, We need to think about this from a broader perspective, because there's um, in the U.S., there's 650 schools that offer marketing as a major, and um, most of those have market research as a requirement. So we have to assume at any given year, there's probably, you know, 10 to 15,000 students or maybe more that are getting trained in this and are at least being exposed to it. So what do we want? What kind of information do we want to be, have people think of? And it's not necessarily train them, it's get them to think about <laughs> um, right. so that we can start thinking more um, about, you know, how, how, we can, how we can help and also protect um, the companies and the brands and protect our industry with reputation for, for both sides.
0: Well said, maybe I'll get final thoughts from people. Brian, any final thoughts on this topic? Are you scared now? (laughs) Are you thoroughly scared? No.
3: Depressed, maybe. (laughs) Um, I can see it, too. If going just back to the Section 230 thing, it's going to get caught up because really the target of that is bigger fish, your Facebooks, your Twitters, your Googles. And we're going to get caught up in that big net. Yep, you can see it coming. Yes.
0: Beth, any final thoughts? What do you think? As research going to end, what's going on? What's going to happen? <laughs> research
1: will not end. No, I I think it's really important that we do something now, which is I think your point. Like, let's make the awareness bold. Let's get people in front of this and start thinking forward about the potential impact. I think that's really key. Um, it's not something I would have ever thought about at this point. So you know, I just feel like that awareness and getting people focused on it now is really the key to not getting caught in the crossfire, as you said. So it is pretty scary.
3: Yeah.
1: And I'm not totally surprised because we've talked about the dangers of DIY in other ways. And this just, you know, really makes, um, yeah, a more scary proposition.
0: Yeah. Brooke, thank you for coming on. Um, any final thoughts? And do you want people to reach out to you? Usually I get let people promote themselves. I'm not sure if you want people to reach out to you. you <laughs> might get sure. Yeah, I'm happy to. Know. I mean, this
2: is this is still something that, um, you know, I'm, I'm researching and writing about. And so I'm happy to always have any kind of conversation about it. Um, you know, it's it's good to get people's feedback too, because, um, you know, maybe somebody has a totally different perspective uh, that I'm happy to hear. And if so, then then great.
0: Okay. And how can people reach you on LinkedIn?
2: LinkedIn is great. Yep. So um, Brooke Revy, or you can, um, if you Google me, I'm the only one out there. So
0: thank you so much for coming on. Um, I have a feeling we'll be talking about this more um, in the coming weeks and months and years. Likely this will never go away. This is our first exposure to it, yeah. at least for me. So I really appreciate you coming on. Thank you so much for your time. All right. Thank you. Um, Thank you to Brooke, um, who's fantastic. I think you're going to hear a little bit more of Brooke review in the future. And so um, Beth is still here and Brian is still here. I kind of wanted this to do a little deeper. If you don't have an agenda for this, it's probably just going to be us chatting for a couple of minutes. And if you want to join the conversation, please reach out to us. Um, Start with Beth, maybe. Um, What are your thoughts?
1: What a great (laughs) conversation, first off. I think she's just got so much to share that you'd mentioned in the intro that maybe the industry is ignoring some of these issues. I'm not sure if they're ignoring or maybe we just haven't connected all the dots here. Yeah, There's a lot of different things that are coming together to show the impact potentially this could have on our industry. And maybe it is just we haven't sat down and thought this completely through. So, I, I mean, really I'm in deep thought right now. There's just so many things going through my head about what we should be doing and considering um, as an industry to try to put some things in place that would protect us. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's where I'm going. It's just a lot in my head right now. It's very deep.
0: Brian, right, go ahead.
3: I think part of why maybe it's not a bigger topic in the industry is that the urgency isn't there. Yeah. We have other things that are more urgent. You have new data privacy laws at different states popping up. And it's more of a we use a checkers mentality at this mm-hmm. point and not chess. It's mm-hmm. I gotta get I got to deal with the thing that's in front of me versus thinking five, six moves ahead. Yep. this
0: yep. is what Brooke is thinking about five, six moves ahead. Yeah. Right.
1: That's probably
3: true.
0: When she presented this topic in Chicago at our North Central Insight Association chapter fall conference. Um, you know, she got really deep, kind of like she did in the podcast, and she said, "Hey, who here has heard of Section 230?"
1: <laughs> no raised one raised their hand. hand. Yeah.
0: And she's but she's been studying this for ten years. Mm-hmm. She's really far ahead of us. I I think you're both right. We're not thinking of how what the Supreme Court potential Supreme Court ruling on this section, how it might impact our industry. Mm-hmm. It might be removed not because of anything marketing research is doing, but Uh, because we've evolved. I think this law was enacted in 1996. That's the infancy of of, um, the internet. Mm -hmm. So we're evolving, and it's really kind of designed to um, get rid of the immunity of uh, platforms such as, I don't know, like Amazon, Apple, Google, uh, potentially, so that they share the risk. And then that will also in turn our platforms, how we think about platforms and research, which are, I don't know, DIY tools, um, databases, um, survey platforms. And so the Qualtrics of the world, the AYTMs of the world, um, those types of things could be impacted by this. That This is huge. If you start thinking about it, uh, the impact and how this would affect our industry. I love the fact that there might be, I don't know if this will happen, but accreditation in or industry. I mean, O'Brien thinks that it's surprising. It's not my character to, love more bureaucracy right I'm more of a Correct. remove the bureaucracy kind of guy but i agree that not everyone should be allowed to just create a survey when there is risk mm-hmm. um, and
1: it's risk to the industry not just to that survey or to that company it's yeah.
3: reputational to our to our industry right i want to back up a second you mentioned yeah. section 230 and after we recorded this mm-hmm. the news came out that the supreme court is taking on that case having to do with section 230 again not in the market research aspect of it, but, but it bleeds as, over. But Facebook, yeah. Twitter, yeah. those, and we are probably going to get swept up, as always. We're, we're collateral
0: damage, yeah. essentially. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. So Howard Feinberg will be earning his money. Yes, he
1: will.
0: Howard um, needs a rave. We need <laughs> <a> call <after laughs> him,
1: though, to call your him
0: Howard needs a team of people because it's hard enough to manage all the state privacy laws and all this stuff that's going on. Now you have this on top of it.
1: Yeah.
0: So. Hope Hopefully people got some awareness of this. I would love to have a, additional conversations about it because I just started thinking about this in the past couple of weeks. Mm-hmm. My Our opinions will evolve over the probably next few weeks. This will be an ongoing topic.
1: Oh, I'm already evolving you know, in my thoughts because when you came back from the conference, you immediately sat down with me and yeah. we talked about this. It was so important to you and such a new concept that you wanted to you yeah. bring it to my attention. And I have done some research and looked at some of the legislation and then listening to Brooke herself talk about it. I mean, this is really important. And it is going to take a while for people listening to this to actually go out and do some of their own research and kind of understand it better before it gets the attention that it deserves. I think it's going to take some time.
0: Yeah. And we may not have a lot of time because the Supreme Court will yeah. rule on this in June, yeah. if not sooner. And who knows how that's going to look. Things might our industry might change in the next nine months. Can
1: we talk about the accreditation a little bit? Oh, please. I think it, it's interesting that that's one of her recommendations. And she mentioned IRBs, all the mm-hmm. academics and even some of the government contractors working for a government contractor prior to joining this company. We always went through an IRB. So I'm wondering when we think about accreditation, where would that accreditation sit in the process? Mm-hmm. What are you guys thinking about that?
0: I, I don't have a clue. <laughs> I think we could treat it as you pass a test as an individual, not as a company. I think it's more of an individual. And then I think we have to have continuing education credits. Like an attorney passes a bar exam, that's a test. And then has to do so many continuing education credits a year, right? To mm-hmm. maintain that,
1: you'd have to because legislation changes that yes. quickly, technology mm-hmm. changes that quickly, so you can't have a one and done.
0: So the test would be around GDPR, yeah, and CRPA mm-hmm. and things like that. I don't, Brian, you probably have an opinion on this. Yeah.
3: <laughs> I do. So as you, as my wife, I've said, is in mental health, so she has to go through this accreditation. She has her certificate. She has to have her continuing education, but. For me, and I'm surprised that you don't fall into my camp here, is that I am you switched. I, I am <laughs> against that national accreditation piece, saying that because how everything is so different, having that national one, I don't think makes sense. It adds additional layers of bureaucracy to it, which I feel is just going to slow everything down. It will.: There is a component within marketing, though. If you think of marketing platforms, Google Analytics. You can take classes through Google and get Google Analytics certified. HubSpot has a marketing automation certification through their platform. So you have understood how to use this, how to run it. There are some law components in it as well. But you can say, hey, I am HubSpot certified. I think that is where we're probably going to end up. Like if you let's take like a Qualtrics, like a Qualtrics certification yeah. and they maybe have to add a little bit extra into law component. but hey. But now that it's a CYA essentially, that they say, yeah. well, they covered it. If they broke it, you didn't follow this. I have to take away your certification. That makes some sense, actually. Yeah. It really does because if you think about it, someone
1: completely DIY who's had no training and certification, the risk on the data that they're reporting is pretty high. Mm-hmm. Who takes that? Who takes that responsibility? Right. And the platforms, you know, think about how many times you have to read a whole list of things that somehow protect the company that you have to sign off. You've read just to, to get into a platform or to get into a tool. We don't do that. We don't do that. So some sort of certification, continuing education seems like it's just eminent.
3: And yeah. there's going to be platforms too to so say, I'm going to use Qualtrics as my example again. If you're wanting to run, hey, I want to ask healthcare questions. Is it something that I can add a quick, Hi- a drop in my HIPAA, yeah. HIPAA release form right at the beginning? Right. Hey, I'm asking this in here. And instead of them having to know it, it's, oh, I'm asking, are you asking HIPAA stuff? Yes, this is being added to the front.
0: That covers everybody. Yeah. And maybe, maybe brands will then force their, all their suppliers to have that certification, or maybe a new ISO certification. Yeah. That might come out of this. I don't know. Right. But something. This is the type of stuff that will industry hopefully will be talking about soon. Because we, to her point, I think she said this in Chicago, not on the podcast, but. It's better if we try to control our destiny as an industry rather than being forced upon and and piggybacking what Congress says about things that don't really apply to us. Mm -hmm. So we just get piggybacked into it. Right. And then there's a whole European Mm -hmm. thing that's a whole nother variable that we can't control because who knows if this will happen in the EU before North America and SMR drives us globally. I don't know.
1: I hope more people invite Brooke to speak. At conferences, to leadership, to executives. I think it's a, it's a really important topic, as you said, that hasn't gotten the attention. And I think just the discussion around it will bring the kind of next steps that we all need.
0: Yeah. Well, thanks for the discussion. This was good. Um, again, reach out to us if you have any questions, uh, you wanna talk about it. Happy to have somebody else come on. We've done this in the past where we thought we had an episode and then all of a sudden it turned into a four part series. I would love it if that's what happened so if you have an opinion on this reach out and we really appreciate you listening to nearly an hour-long podcast uh thank you so much have a great week